And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, March 28th. That's right. I said Sunday. It's the first fab of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller, breaking it all down. The first of 26 such episodes, <laughs> I think, which sounds like a mountain to climb. <laughs> Would you say it like that? But that's it's a mountain we love to climb. We do this every year. We grind fab on Sundays, and mm-hmm. we're here and trying to help everybody out there do as best they can with uh, a wild, wild start to this season. How's it going for you on this Sunday, Beller? Pretty good, DVR. You know, it's a, uh, we're actually sort of like the uh, the mountain climber in that one Price is Right game, right? Because it is a mountain to climb, and we're trying to pick the right prices, just like you do in the Price is Right game. You don't want to go too far over, or you're ultimately going to fall over that mountain, not have enough money left to make some claims <laughs> you need later in the season. So all we need is that we need that music, and then we're we're set. We should change that. We should change the intro music for the Sunday episode to that if Price is Right will let us. Well. Option two, and I like the comparison, option two would be to get some other yodeling and just hope that people don't notice, but I, I think the, the comparison I could do it. It's... I could do it. I'd be happy to do it. Um, yeah, send me the, the audio before you do it, and um, I'll let you know if it, if it makes the cut. I, I, I trust you. I just, I just want to hear it first so I know what I'm agreeing to. Uh, but we're going to talk about every type of player available in a bunch of different leagues. We're going to talk about some shallow league targets, deep league targets. Uh, we're going to break down pitching, going to break down hitting, going to do everything kind of by group. So we have starters, relievers with some unsettled closer situations. Uh, on the hitting side, you know, we'll go from position group to position group, looking at catchers, corners, middle infielders, and outfielders as well. Uh, hopefully in future weeks, we'll have a stream going, which will make this really interactive. And if you got players you're thinking about adding or dropping, you can send those our way. Uh, you can always send them our way on Twitter. He's at M. Beller. I'm at Derek Van Riper. We can break them down during the show, uh, even if you're not watching live. So I want to start with pitching today. We'll start on the, pitch, the starting pitching side, where Freddie Peralta, if you drafted early, there's a chance he's out there. If you drafted any time from January on, he was probably drafted as a high-volume reliever. Uh, but I just want to throw him out there for shallow leagues where he's still out there. He did officially win the fifth starter role to begin the season in Milwaukee. Um, I just look for reasons to talk about Freddie Peralta anytime yes. I can. There's not much to add here. Like If he's available in your league, it's probably a 10- or 12-team league. In that case, you don't have to go completely over the top to get him. Mm-hmm. But I do think he's worth rostering in leagues that size so long as he's starting. I think as a bulk reliever, it gets a little tricky to have a player like that on your roster. Um, he's available in a league that I drafted back at the end of September. That's a 15-teamer where people are desperate for pitching. So the bidding in that unusual scenario is going to be disgusting. It's going to be 15% of your budget, if not a bit more, because of his potential ceiling. But uh, someone who's available in more shallow leagues, Trevor Rogers. 
Uh, we've seen a lot of interest in him. Marlins, young starter. He can get into the high 90s from the left side. And I think, for me, I'm always looking for I'm always looking for pitching in Miami because it's such a favorable place to stream at home. Like You feel good about mediocre pitchers going in Miami just because it's such a soft landing spot from a park perspective. We did get to see a little bit of Rodgers in the shortened season. The ratios were ugly, a 6'11 ERA, a 161 whip, but we're talking about 28 innings. Struck out 30% of the batters he faced. Uh, did have a little bit of a walk issue, but really didn't have that in the minors. And we're talking about a guy that has the pedigree of a first-round pick. He's a 13th overall pick from 2017. Uh, it's not just the fastball. It's a fastball, a good changeup, and a developing slider. So what are you doing with Trevor Rogers in leagues where he's available? Yeah, this is uh, an age 23 season for him too, so still a very young guy. And you know, we're here right at the beginning of the season. Season hasn't even started yet. This is uh, a time of year where I like to use one of your go-to phrases, right? Talking about what could go right players. And Trevor Rogers is a what could go right player where if things do go right, things go really, really right for him. And I think that's the sort of player we want to be taking a shot on at this stage of the season. So as you said, he's a shallow league guy for sure, but I think that the barrier to entry, even though with that it's so much higher in a shallow league, he has crossed it because of what the ceiling is and the fact that like things would have to go really wrong for him early in the season for him to lose a grip on a starter job. Like, even if he's not you know, lighting it up, he's going to remain in that rotation. So I like a guy with his talent, with his pedigree, his age. The fact that he play, pitches in a good park, as you said, uh, and the fact that I think he's just going to have plenty of leash from that coaching staff. I want to take a shot on a guy like this because we could be talking about some gaudy strikeout numbers if things line up for him this season. Yeah, and I think I would probably use him against the Cardinals. The home start, he'd be the fifth starter for the Marlins as the schedule sort of comes together. Uh, won't pitch in the shortened first week in that series against Tampa Bay, but the second series of the year for the Marlins is a home series against St. Louis. So I would generally be comfortable with him there, even though the Cardinals did add Nolan Arenado to that lineup. I think just being at home is enough to swing that in Rogers' favor. And it's an early strikeout addition at the very least for a guy that could stick in that rotation all season and prove to be a really nice pickup. And of course, there are some of you listening who maybe haven't drafted yet. Uh, if that's the case, I think Trevor Rogers is a guy that probably goes in that pick 250 to pick 300 overall range. He's actually a, a good target around that time in your draft. So uh, within the first 20 rounds, if you have not actually put your team together yet, taking a step down just a little bit, Rich Hill, uh, I think is interesting enough to pick up. We're not sure when he's going to pitch first in the 2021 season. It could be as early as Game 3 against the Marlins, the series I just mentioned on the other side. Rotation order still up in the air. Kevin Cash was talking to the media on Sunday and said that they have a plan for Hill and Chris Archer, but they're not ready to share it yet. Does that mean they might tandem start? I mean, because you got two pretty different guys that maybe at this stage of their respective careers are a lot less likely to get through the lineup a third time. So if you put Hill and Archer together in tandem, you got a lefty and a righty, that could wreak havoc on an opposing lineup, and maybe you get four innings from one guy, four innings from the other, and you go to that bullpen. Maybe those two guys in tandem can just take out a whole game for you. So uh, what's your interest level in Hill, given the uncertainty about how the Rays are going to deploy him? 
it's still pretty uh, it's still high enough that I would be thinking about him uh, if I were in a league where he were available because of what we know he can do on just like a batter for batter and inning for inning basis I am worried about the race though I mean we're talking about a team that babied uh, uh, Blake Snell every step of the way and we know what they did with him in the World Series we're talking about a team that uh, manages its pitching staff in a way that is very fruitful for the team in real life but can hurt us in the fantasy world and Rich Hill pushing 40 years old like he's someone who I think is just an easy prime candidate to lose a lot of the innings that maybe you would be counting on him for because of the way that team attacks the pitching position. So he's someone again, if he's in, if he's available in my league, you know, I may kick the tires early in the season, but not someone who I'm holding out hope for to be a guy for me all year. Yeah. I think he has kind of fallen into the on and off the roster again, range for a yep. lot of mixed leagues and he was a very late pick I did a draft on Saturday night and I think I got Rich Hill 27th 28th round one of my last picks in a 15 teamer so he's kind of in the back of the top 400 at this point uh, so you don't have to go overboard on bidding but keep an eye out for that schedule because that usage could be optimized and as we've seen if you put an opener in front of someone who wouldn't normally go five the probability of getting a win jumps up quite a bit right uh, and looking at some other similarly rostered players using the TGFBI numbers as kind of a, a basis for availability, JT Brubaker is sitting there, also available in about 20% of leagues, similar to Rich Hill. He was one of Eno's deep sleepers this draft season. I think the appeal for me with a pirate, Beller, is that they don't necessarily... They don't really have pitching depth at all. Yes. And they're not going to have rules like Tampa Bay where they can take a guy like Rich Hill and let him go through the lineup once or one and a half times and then pull him from a game. Mm -hmm. They need innings. They need their starters to try and go <laughs> five plus. So you could be rewarded if you're right about someone like JT Brubaker. First two starts of the season are likely to come against the Cubs if he starts the third game of the season. Uh, the next time he'd take the ball would be against the Cubs. So once on the road to open the year, once uh, at Wrigley as well. Do you have any faith in JT Brubaker as a somewhat available pitcher here in week one? I, I mean, I think you hit it on the head with that. Like, he's going to stick in the rotation. He pretty much has to stick. I mean, this team's got to figure out uh, a way to finish. You know, 162 times nine, they got to figure out a way to finish all those innings. And it can't just be cycling through pitchers and leaning heavily uh, on the bullpen. He, JT Brubaker is going to have plenty of uh, opportunity. So I like that for him. I like that he's going to have that opportunity. I don't think I buy the strikeout per inning that he put up last year. He's never really shown that at any other step along the way in his career. You can go back to 2016 and A-ball for the last time that he did that over a significant stretch. So I don't buy that he's that brand of pitcher. I think he's probably more in the 7.5, 8K per 9 range. And you know that can still have some value, but it's got to come with stronger rates than we feel uh he can bring to the table here 26 years old also or 27 years old so I don't think we're suddenly going to see a new level of strikeout stuff from Brubaker uh, I mean I'm want to disagree with Eno but uh, this is not someone who I see making a big impact this season yeah I'm actually somewhat interested but I don't know if I really want to throw him out there against the Cubs on the road to start the year so kind of depends on my situation in terms of flexibility on my bench do I have a spot that I can use to stash somebody uh, if so then you know maybe maybe I'll stash him away uh, the interesting group behind Brubaker though includes a few different names Ross Stripling who would line up for a two-start week against the Rangers and Angels uh, after opening week 
Matt Shoemaker, who, oh man, he's got one of the worst <laughs> injury histories you yes. can imagine. So yeah. I, I really don't know how safe his role is. And Randy Dobnik had a great spring. If, if they came out and said Randy Dobnik's going to be our fifth starter, it wouldn't be that much of a surprise. So I'm inclined to say Dobnik's the better pickup if both are available. And then Mike Fultonevich, whose velocity is ticking back up this spring. The Rangers, plenty of opportunities in that rotation, a bit like Pittsburgh, but in the AL. And a ballpark that played very pitcher-friendly in its first season, too. So it could be a soft streaming spot for guys like Fulte. Out of that group, do you see anybody who has more than short-term value? I've always been a sucker for Ross Stripling. Uh, I was a little disappointed that he didn't put it together in a way I thought he could last year once he you know, got out of L.A. and, and was a consistent starter. I always thought he was someone who had a little bit more to offer than he was able to show with the Dodgers, and understandably so with the depth of that team. But last year scared me off him a little bit. Again, this is a what-could-go-right time of year, and the guy who has the most payoff if things go right is Fulton Evich. So he's the guy who I would be looking at the most out of this group. But with the velocity coming back, I think the strikeout stuff that he flashed for us in Atlanta could come back too. Yeah, he's been hit around a little bit this spring despite the velocity Mm -hmm. coming back. So I think there's a pretty clear drop from from Stripling to Shoemaker and Fulte, but that past success does kind of hang around in my mind as something that could pull me back in. I'm going to try and keep Fulte in the streaming conversation as opposed to the you know pick up and hold conversation, just because I feel yeah, like there are plenty fair. of ways this could go wrong. <laughs> I was hinting at this one a little bit though, talking about uh, the Pirates Cubs matchup. Jake Arrieta gets the Pirates, and if we're looking at teams that are going to be easy to stream against this season. The Pirates might be number one on that list, a lineup that you just do not fear at all as they are deep into their rebuild. Jake Arrieta's reunion with the Cubs, uh, a nice story, at least in theory. I, I don't know how the story is going to play out over the course of this season, but I'm not worried about the entire season. I see two matchups against the Pirates <laughs> to begin the year. Yep. And I'm at least willing to find out if there's anything left in the tank in those spots before I start to pass judgment on what Arietta might be for the rest of 2021. Totally agree with you. I mean, I think Jake Arietta is a great guy to have on your team for the first week of the season. And then you could even if he even if he pitches really well against the Pirates, you could just drop him after that because those are two great spots for him going up against that Pirates lineup. I absolutely want to kick the tires and find out what 2021 Jake Arietta looks like uh, for the first week of the season against the Pirates. I'll also throw out there, since we're on the Cubs rotation, that Albert Alzali, since he has made the rotation, uh, Alec Mills, not in the opening day rotation, which was, came as a bit of a surprise. You've got Trevor Williams and Alzali rounding things out for the Cubs. Uh, Alzali, I think this could be an interesting guy, right? He's he's the one different sort of pitcher in the Cubs rotation. You have a lot of guys who are going to be contact managers. Alzelay's the one guy who can maybe be a real strikeout guy on this team. David Ross saying really good things about him. And the fact that he got the fourth option that the Cubs weren't sure if he had or didn't have, got it from the arbitrator, and they still kept him up and in the rotation – I think that tells you a lot about what David Ross and the pitching coach Tommy Hadovy think of Alzali and think where he is. So this is someone who also he's going to get his first start against the Brewers. Uh, depending on what they do with Williams and uh, and Alzali, who they go four, who they go five, he might end up getting his second start against the Pirates. But also someone who I- I'm interested in taking a shot on early in the season just to see if he has taken that next step. Yeah, I think if you're pushing more towards the who could I pick up and and hold and, and yeah, possibly be really exactly. happy with throughout the season. Alzale over Arietta is the 
higher risk sort of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alzale's control is definitely a concern. He could be a really nice source of strikeouts. I do like Alzale more than Fulton Evich, even though Fulty is on rosters in about 50% of TGFBI leagues already. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would keep that in mind. Alzale actually much more heavily rostered at this point at 95% in those leagues. But uh, in some of the more shallow leagues out there, we talked about up top, like he could easily be an option that you pick up and, and hold on to. I do think it's interesting if he doesn't get the Pirates in that second start, he gets the Brewers twice and the second mm-hmm. time is at Miller Park. So I, I would trust him for a home stream. I don't think I would trust him for a road stream That's fair. at what used to be Miller Park. <laughs> yeah, American Miller, family Am Fam. Am Fam Park. <laughs> <laughs> Madison's yeah. finest coming to Milwaukee. I'm sure they're a lovely insurance company with plenty of lovely people working there. I just don't like the name of the ballpark. I think we were all happy with it the way that it was. Uh, Some other options to consider on the starting pitching side. Logan Webb could start the third game of the season for the Giants. That would be a road trip to Seattle. They're one of the teams that I'm not necessarily afraid of, even when they're at home. So I'll take a guy like Logan Webb and take that shot if I'm looking for Ks, looking for the possibility of a win. Uh, Both pitchers in that matchup, Chris Flexen is supposed to go for Seattle in that one. That's going to be the third game of the season, April 3rd. So I'll I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, I don't I don't think Chris Flexen is necessarily good. He was successful in the KBO last year, but he's back stateside, temporarily part of this Mariners rotation. He's probably the, probably a pitch-and-ditch guy for me. I don't really see long-term appeal even if this start goes well. Kind of fits into the, the Jake Arrieta mm-hmm. bin, not knowing what that long-term value is going to be like, barring some... You know, unforeseen developments. If he comes out and the velocity is good and the secondaries look amazing, maybe I'll change my tune. But I just see this as a, a really short-term play if you're going to go after flexing. With Webb, I think there's a better chance you're going to find more times where you want to use him because even though Oracle Park was more hitter-friendly in 2020 than it has been in the past, I still think it's a pitcher-friendly environment overall and it's a place where you could end up using Webb a decent amount of the time this season. And like you're not really afraid of those matchups he's going to get at home with Colorado. You're not afraid of those matchups he's going to get at home uh, with Arizona too much. You know, maybe you avoid San Diego and LA across the board, and you think about it that way. But uh, there are there are he's a, he has enough of an upside, I think, where he's a guy who you start in spots, but also keep on your roster. So again, like this is the time of year where you should be like taking all these upside shots on guys who you know could develop into something, and if they don't develop into anything, they really don't cost you much. Like, this is the time of year to do that as you are still figuring out what your roster is. And then once we get two, three, four weeks into the season, things have settled a little bit. We have a little bit better of an idea of who these pitchers are. If you hit on one of them, that's awesome. And if you haven't, you know, it doesn't really cost you too much. Yeah, I think with, with Webb, too, if you're just kind of looking at the entire month of April, it's Seattle. He misses the Padres the first time, which is Beautiful. great. Yeah. Catches the Rockies in San Francisco, which is really nice, and would then miss the Reds at home, which I think I would probably use them against the Reds at least in a 15-team league. And 12 like might those, be different. You'd have those three starts worth of data to see like how he's been throwing the ball also. You'd have, like, like you're, what, you're not going to be flying blind by the time you're making that decision. Right, but I think he'll miss the Reds also and catch the Marlins on the road. That's a perfectly fine spot. Yep. He'll miss the Phillies on the road, which I wouldn't start him against the Phillies, catch the Marlins at home, <laughs> and then possibly catch the Rockies at home again. So 
I mean, Logan Webb might have one of the most favorable schedules of any starting pitcher That's in the nice. entire league in April. So I think we want to take advantage of that. I would say of the uh, lesser rostered pitchers we're talking about here, he jumps out as having the most long-term appeal. Mm-hmm. He could easily become better than the Fultys and even the Ross Stripling. So I'm with you on Stripling, by the way. I think there was enough there with the Dodgers where I'm willing to give him a pass for 2020. I think yeah. the Jays are desperate for quality innings. I think he might actually provide those innings. But two thumbs up on, on Logan Webb. The schedule is excellent, and I'd really like to see what he can do throughout most of those starts in April in nearly all formats. Uh, there was one more job battle that appears to have gone the opposite way that we expected Cal Quantrill, when spring training began, looked like he had the upper hand over Logan Allen to be Cleveland's fifth starter. It appears Logan Allen's won that job with a really nice spring. I don't think I've seen an official declaration from anybody in Cleveland just yet. Uh, But the only concern here is that Logan Allen doesn't necessarily have to start a game until the second full week of the season. So you kind of have to wait it out. You kind of have to be in a situation where you don't need the innings right now if you're going to pick him up. So that might limit him to some really deep leagues, at least for this week. Yeah, and I'm perfectly comfortable with someone beating me to the punch on him because the payoff, even if he does stick in that fifth spot for Cleveland, could be really small. So I'm not, I have no interest in him this week. I, I would rather have the roster spot to use on a number of the guys we've talked about or guys who are frankly already on my team. Uh, no interest in him in, in Fab this week. If we get to next week and you know we see how things have shook out over the first week, then maybe I'm thinking about him then. But as for this week, I'm pretty easily taking a pass. Now we get to move on to relievers, uh, where I think there's still quite a few unsettled closer situations. It is for um, a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that's going to be the case throughout this season. If you drafted early, Jordan Romano is probably the best reliever available in your league. He's 100% rostered in TGFBI because people were already snatching him up as a staff filler behind Kirby Yates, kind of waiting to see if Yates was going to be healthy, unfortunately. Yates is not healthy, and Romano versus Rafael Dolis appears to be the remaining job battle there, but everybody's treating this like Romano is going to get the job, even if they haven't named him the closer yet. Uh, Speaking of that Saturday draft, I drafted him, I think, in the 11th round, so a little earlier than I wanted to, but it was a 15-team league, and you can't trade, so (laughs) saves are kind of gross and hard to find, (laughs) so... How confident are you that Romano really is the guy? I mean, I think you could make a pretty clear argument that he's their best reliever, but are we concerned that the Jays could say, yeah, you're our best reliever. You're going to get some (laughs) saves, but you're also going to get some seventh inning work and some Mm -hmm. eighth inning work, and we're going to truly mix and match things throughout the season. I think we should be concerned about that with basically every team unless they have you know, Josh Hader or Aroldis Chapman or, or Liam Hendricks, right? I mean, we should be concerned about that with almost every single team in the majors. Teams have wised up to how they should be using their relievers. So from as a baseball fan, love to see that. Fantasy, obviously, it makes things a little bit tricky. But even with that concern living somewhere in the back of our minds, I think the overriding factor with relievers is that you just trust the talent and that no matter what he does, the talent is going to lead him to fantasy fantasy value. Maybe he's not getting 100% of the save opportunities, but those games where he's coming in in the seventh, that talent is still pushing him to, you know, strike out 
two guys in in a full inning of work and you know give up nothing. So he's going to help the strikeouts. He's going to help the ratios. And I think that because of the talent, he's also going to be the primary closer for this team. Maybe not the only closer, but the primary guy. All that adds up to uh, Romano being really attractive. And I think that's going to hold for a, a lot of the relievers who people are thinking about in their first round of fab bidding. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with Romano... I'm willing to be aggressive in fab mm-hmm. in a league that's already been drafted where he somehow wasn't chosen. It's probably at least 20% of a budget if you want to get him, though, in a competitive league. You're, you're going to spend significantly. In, in a lot of cases, it might be 25 to 30% because when you look at the underlying numbers, you get a guy that last year struck out 36.8% of the batters he faced, mm-hmm. only had an 8.8% walk rate. The ratios were outstanding. You can look at those underlying skills and look at the ratios in what was only 14 and two-thirds innings and very quickly talk yourself into a guy that has the skills to be a top-five closer. With the opportunity, I tweeted this half-joking a couple days ago, he's pretty much a top-ten closer right away if they just say he's the guy. Right. That's, that's how terrible the closer situation is because if he's not sharing it, that puts him ahead of all those mid-pack guys like even Will Smith who could share with Chris Martin. I like Will mm-hmm. Smith a lot. Uh, you look at Drew Pomeranz, who appears to have lost that spot to Emilio Pagan, at least to begin the season. St. Louis's situation with Hicks and Giovanni Gallegos is messy. Like Jordan Romano could be in a better situation than all those guys, better than yeah. Taylor Rogers and Alex Colomay in Minnesota, because that seems like a real mix and match situation with Rocco Baldelli calling the shots, at least for the time being. So I, I get it. If you want to be aggressive with Romano, if you want to say he's the best pitcher available in your league this week, better than any of the starters we talked about, I'm not going to disagree with you because I think he could have a lot more value than pretty much all of them. The only exception maybe is Trevor Rogers, but I don't think I would spend 20% of my fab budget on Trevor Rogers. I think he's more of like an eight to 10 guy and everybody else we talked about for starters would be probably 5% or less, uh, mostly in the 3% range for the most part. So there's a big difference in what we're looking to spend on some of these relievers compared to starters because it's so early in the year. And sometimes all a team needs to see is their new closer take a couple opportunities and run with them, and then they'd have mm-hmm. the job. Then they go mm-hmm. from the team that was going to split it up to, oh, you know, we really like having a hierarchy of how we do things here. We really like having a clear plan, a clear roadmap of how we're going to get through the late innings. So I do think we're going to have a couple of these situations you know, crystallize maybe in the first week, depending on how games work. If, if you get two or three save situations in the first four days, we might know this time next week that a few of these bumpy situations are actually going to really belong to one player to begin the season. I don't know if that's going to be the case in Cincinnati because they have said they have co-closers with Amir Garrett and Lucas Sims. Sims available in a few leagues. Garrett less available. Uh, Garrett's a little further along. They both had injuries this spring, but Garrett's looked really good in his yes. recent Cactus League performances. I think he's struck out his last nine batters he's faced. Pretty sure that's the only uh, nine batters he's faced in the entire spring also. Yeah, so he's certainly <laughs> looking like he's yeah. ready to go for the start of the season. Do you think they're going to stay true to their word, though, and actually keep a split? I mean, you have a Garrett. Uh, Garrett's a lefty. Sims is a righty. So if you play the matchups, it, it could be a, let's say there's 35 saves. It could be a 20-15 split. I mean, that that's not, to me, it's not out of the question, given their skills and given that they're also pitchers of opposite handedness because the matchups yeah. can break that way. I think we have no choice but to take David Bell at his word on this. Uh, you know, David Bell was happy to take some save opportunities away from Rysel Iglesias 
And, and you know, Rysel Iglesias was like their closer. He was their guy, and he even he didn't get 100% of the save opportunities uh, when he was in Cincinnati. So I think we really have to take David Bell at his word. And again, this is where it comes back to just trusting the talent. I love Amir Garrett. I like him better than Lucas Sims. I would be more interested in Amir Garrett than in Lucas Sims. And even if I know that he's going to give up some of those save opportunities, I want Amir Garrett out, whatever he's pitching. The ninth inning and getting saves, or tomorrow he's pitching the seventh inning and coming in with you know runners on second and third and one out in the game. Like I want that dude throwing pitches for my fantasy team, no matter what sort of role he is being deployed in on a given day. I will trust that his talent is going to lead to strikeouts, going to lead to good ratios, and ultimately at least a majority of the save opportunities for Cincinnati. All that adds up to making him more attractive to me than Sims, but I do think there's plenty of a role for Sims in the fantasy world too. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think they're both rosterable in at least 15 team leagues, of course, mm-hmm. but to even 12 teamers, I think for now, Lucas Sims should be rostered too in, in any spots where, where he's still out there. I do prefer Garrett if both are out there. I do prefer Romano to both Garrett and Sims because I see Dolis as less of a threat to Romano than I see Sims and Garrett being to Agreed. each other. Uh, as far as other messy situations go, Tampa Bay, shocker. <laughs> uh, it got worse because Nick Anderson has an elbow injury. He's out until after the All-Star break. In TGFBI, Pete Fairbanks and Diego Castillo are universally rostered, so they're not available there. In some more shallow leagues, they could be out there. So the next question is... If the Rays options are available, if either one of Fairbanks or Castillo or some other reliever you want to throw a dart on, if any of those guys are available, do you prioritize them ahead of the Reds options or ahead of Romano? I do not. I, I don't. I don't. It's just it's too hard to figure out. And this has been just the truth of the Rays forever, right? I mean, uh, this is just how they do things in the bullpen, and uh, it's to their credit. I mean, this works for them year after year after year, as it shouldn't. Like, would you totally rule out one of these guys ultimately being like a go-to follower for Kevin Cash? Like, I wouldn't. I, I, I don't know how likely it is, but like this team is going to experiment. They're going to play around with roles up and down their pitching staff, maybe not including Tyler Glasnow, but like everyone else who knows what sort of role you're going to be in a month from now. Like, and it works. It works for them. It gets them wins. It gets them, you know, above what their expectation is. And so I just think that as great as it is in real life, it's a real headache for us in fantasy. And I just trust a whole lot more what Toronto's going to do with Romano, what Cincinnati's going to do with Garrett and Sims. I would definitely be going after those guys for straight up what I need in fantasy more than the Tampa Bay guys, even if I thought the Tampa Bay guys were as good or even better pitchers. Yeah, I would bid less in more shallow leagues where the Rays guys and the Reds guys are available. I'm interested in Fairbanks and Castillo, but I think there could be options C and D that also play a role here. We've talked about the Rays as a team that could have a a dozen different guys get a save over a full season. That happened in 2019. (laughs) And and Pete Fairbanks wasn't even getting saves in the regular season last year, but then he was getting saves in the playoffs. So there's just so many... (laughs) <laughs> so many ways this can this can play out that you know they're interesting skills guys mm-hmm. you should go after them you should be less aggressive than you are with Romano Garrett and Sims uh, the next one's tricky San Diego I thought was going to be Drew Pomeranz he had a, a forearm injury that slowed him down this spring Emilio Pagan looks really good and uh, I think he had an injury last season that he was pitching through so that maybe limited how effective he was what are you doing in San Diego right now? Because I think this is similar to these other situations where there are multiple players that are still worth rostering, at least for now, until we get a peek at how things actually work. But how do you see things playing out in the weeks ahead? 
Definitely think Pagan and Pomeranz are worth rostering. I'm not putting Melanson in that group. Uh, the skills deterioration, plus the fact that it feels as though he's probably third at best in the pecking order for saves. If he ends up being coming the closer, then I'll battle for him on Fab in a couple of weeks. I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm treating Pagan almost the same way that I'm treating like Jordan Romano. I think that he uh, has the inside track on saves. He should have the inside track on saves. I mean, you know, this regime brought him in uh, for a reason. And obviously 2020 was a bit of an injury mess for him. But he looks a whole lot like the guy this spring that he was in 2019. We have the benefit of having you know, 30 beat writers on staff, and we got to talk to Dennis Lynn about this a few times, our San Diego Padres beat writer, and he was saying this as early as, I mean, God, DVR, I can't remember exactly when that episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15 was, but it had to be, if it wasn't February, it was early in March, and he was saying it back then, like, you know, Pagan's gonna, Pagan is going to have the chance to be the guy, and as long as the, the health and the skills hold up, he would bet on Pagan emerging from this group and being there more often than not closer. Nothing has happened this spring that would push us away from that, and I think ultimately that that's where Jace Tingler settles, and we're talking about Emilio Pagan as this team's closer, full stop. I really like him, one of my favorite targets in any drafts I have remaining, and in fact, I do have one on Tuesday, and I will be going after Pagan for sure in that one. Would you take him before Romano or ahead of Romano in that draft? I think I would still take Romano first. Um, As confident as I am in Pagan, I, I do feel like Pomeranz can be a little bit more of a uh, of a threat to him than Dolis can be to Romano. But like, if I miss out, quote on Romano and get Pagan, I feel just as good about that spot being filled by Pagan as I would with Romano. All right, we move on to another bumpy situation in Cleveland, and I agree. By the way, I'm Romano over Pagan, and mm-hmm. I think I'm Pagan over the Reds. But same that that's really close. Like I, I I've been, I think I've had. I've had Pomeranz ranked higher than the Reds options until about now, which has been mm-hmm. very frustrating. I think <laughs> Pomeranz is really good as a reliever. And I think he's actually probably better than Pagan, but they're not using him the way that I want him to be used. So I have to fight against my own uh, evaluation of the players and sort of adjust mm-hmm. accordingly. Cleveland, though, is the other really up-in-the-air situation. I've been right this draft season so far. At least I feel right in not having James Karinchak anywhere. I thought he was way too expensive in early drafts. Mm -hmm. The strikeout rates in the minors and even in his big league innings so far have been incredible. Like He could lead all of baseball in strikeouts. He could also lead all of baseball in walks. That is part (laughs) of who he is as a pitcher. Mm -hmm. It's baked in to that ceiling that you get. And we've heard some pretty high praise from Terry Francona about Nick Whitgren, which is much to my chagrin because Emmanuel Class A was my guy. I have all of the Emmanuel Class A you could possibly want. They have not named Whitgren the closer yet, so it's still up in the air. What are you doing with the Cleveland bullpen right now, and are all three of these guys temporarily rosterable given what's at stake here? I mean, this is a good team, Yep, one that should generate 40 save chances this year, and Cleveland strikes me as more of a paint-by-numbers sort of team in terms of how Terry Francona is going to manage. As an older manager, especially, mm-hmm. the way they've done it in the past with Brad Hand just being the guy, I think they want someone to be the ninth-inning guy. So do you agree with that breakdown of how they're going to do it? And if so, who is going to do it? 
Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I do think that they want someone to just they, they can trust as their ninth inning guy. I'm with you on Karinchak being way too expensive. Um, just with all the the you know, erraticness in his game, uh, I thought that he was someone who was pretty easy to avoid at cost. I think that all three of these guys are temporarily rosterable, and I think we have to just uh, again like. You know, we we can't we can't try to like outsmart what the managers themselves are saying. That's just a great way to get into trouble. And we also can't assume that everything that they say is at face value, right? So the, the truth is somewhere in between that. But with everything we've heard from Francona about Nick Whitgren and with the fact that Emmanuel Classe, as good as the skills are, it's not like we're talking about a guy who's got, you know, a couple of 30 save seasons uh, in his career. I lean toward Whitgren as being the guy who is most likely to get saves. Now, because of all the uncertainty with this team, I'm not going to be the first person to jump out on these guys. I'm probably going to get beat to all of them, and I'm going to fill my relief spots elsewhere because this is one I could see changing quickly. It could be Whitgren, and then he has a couple of bad outings, and they flip to Class A. It could be Karinchak just living there. I think Karinchak is too high ceiling of a pitcher for them to want to stick him in the ninth inning no matter what, especially if we're right about this team wanting a ninth inning no matter what guy. I feel like Karinchak's too good to be buttonholed that way. I think you want him as a high leverage no matter what guy. And we know the ninth inning isn't always high leverage, even when it is a save opportunity. So I wouldn't be surprised if he seeded more of those save opportunities than his skill set would suggest he should. But it's a situation where there's way too much to figure out, way too much to untangle. Who knows when it's going to be untangled. It's a pretty easy bullpen as a whole for me to stay away from. If I could draft, if we could do like, like we do Team QB in fantasy football, if I could draft... Cleveland relievers as a position, I would be all in on them because I think there's a lot of skill in this bullpen, but picking the right one, it's something I don't really, really want to mess with. Yeah, it's it's a good trio overall. I, I think mm-hmm. what has led me to think that it's going to be Class A eventually is while he has the lowest strikeout rate in the big leagues of the three, at least just going back to 2019, mm-hmm. he has the best walk rate. And he doesn't have a home run problem. Whitgren has a home run problem. And I think one of the quickest ways to lose a closer role is to give up a home run in the ninth (laughs) inning or to give up home runs in a couple of games close together in the ninth Uh inning. That is the surest way to no longer be a closer. So that's the little bit of difference that I see in this group. But at a certain point, you're right. You do have to do what the manager says and just follow what they say. And it just looks and sounds more and more like Whitgren's getting that first opportunity. The way I want to play it, if, if available, you know, 8-10% of your budget is probably what it's going to take, if not more. If they don't name a closer before Sunday night, you can keep the bid reasonably low. If you des- if desperate for saves, 8-10% is fine. I think all three of these guys need to be held at least through the first short week and possibly one more week after that, which is really tough to do in leagues that don't have IL spots. Like if you're playing in the NFBC... You're you're frustrated because you're looking at a possible non-closer reliever with two of these three guys, and I think you can live with that for a short week and one full week just to see if things stabilize before we get to the second full week of games. The first 10 games should give us enough insight to make a better, more confident decision about whether or not we want to hold any of these guys as staff fillers or whether one true closer is going to emerge in Cleveland. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. I, I agree completely. Some 
Easier to figure out situations appear to be in Miami. Anthony Bass looks like he's the guy mostly available only in shallow leagues. So if he's available, I think he could maybe jump ahead of a few of these names that we mentioned, at least behind Romano and Pagan for me, maybe ahead of the Rays, maybe ahead of Cleveland's options, given the uncertainty. But even with Bass, I'm not convinced he's necessarily locked in for the long haul. Uh, Jose Alvarado would be the other speculative dart. Only 12% rostered in TGFBI. The Phillies have made something of Archie Bradley's ability to go multiple innings this spring, which would suggest that he's not necessarily going to be a regular closer. Uh, We have not seen a confirmation of anyone being the guy just yet, but Alvarado is a lefty that can get up close to 100 with the velo. I think he's a good cheap spec ad for the short term just to see how this one plays out. Get that free kick at the can. A few other names out there, Gregory Soto, Tanner Scott, and Reyes Maranta. So you got a possible closer in Detroit, possible closer in Baltimore, and a possible closer in San Francisco. Three teams that might not win a lot of games, but if they were to settle on one guy, at least for the first few months of the season, they could be really nice discounted value pickups or late draft targets if you haven't drafted yet. So do you like any one of those last four guys that I mentioned? Yeah, I've been beating the drum for Maronta all, all really all winter and all spring. I think that he's just the most skilled reliever in that uh, San Francisco bullpen. And you know, Jake McGee still has uh, his charms, but I think Maronta, when healthy, is the most skilled guy out there. And I just think that that is going to ultimately lead him again. I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's what we trust this time of year. We trust skill and we trust that uh, he's going to give us useful numbers regardless of how the Giants end up using him. I do think that he's going to, he has enough of a skill gap between him and the rest of the bullpen that I think ultimately they have to try him as the closer. Of course, that could end up being wrong and Jake McGee could find the fountain of youth and be great this season again and lock down that closer role for San Francisco. Moronta could prove himself valuable in a bounce around high leverage no matter what sort of role too. But I, I just I think he's going to end up being the closer for this team, and I'm basing that off the fact of nothing other than he's the most skilled guy out there. He's someone who uh, I grabbed him in tout, I think maybe with my very last pick, and uh, I'm targeting him across the board because I really think he can end up has a great chance, maybe better than any of the other speculative guys we talk about, to end up as his team's locked-in closer. So he's someone who I'm going after strongly in that Tuesday draft I talked about that I still have my remaining my last one of the spring. Interesting. I think I like Soto the best from a skills perspective. Uh, all three are you know low, low bids, though, if they're right, available sure, this weekend. Um, the other name I'll just throw at you, Adam Adovino, could get some saves early in the season. Matt Barnes currently sidelined with COVID. So that situation, which I think was kind of leaning a little closer to Barnes, mm-hmm. could be open again during the season. I think the appeal of possibly picking up Adovino is if he takes the job and runs with it. Maybe they just say, hey, we can throw Matt Barnes as a seventh and eighth inning guy, give him more innings, keep Adovino in short relief, and let things play out that way. So I wouldn't wouldn't dismiss the possibility that Adam Adovino could just outright take over that closer role in Boston. So I would add him to the fun for this week, maybe more of an 8 to 10% bid on a guy like Adovino as well. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, we move on to the hitters, Beller. Uh, A little less to get excited about in the early weeks, but we need to see how playing time actually shakes out because there are plenty of job shares and job battles that really won't be decided until the games begin to count. Uh, let's start behind the plate where Alejandro Kirk is probably rostered in any league with more than 12 teams. But mm-hmm. if you're in a shallow league, I think he's going to make the opening day roster. And I don't think it's going to take long for him to overtake Danny Jansen for the starting catcher job. I think he's clearly their best offensive hitter, best offensive player behind the plate. Jansen's an okay defender, but the bar's not so high that Kirk's going to lose a lot of playing time because of it. Do you think he can hit enough, even if it's a 50-50 split, to make a positive impact in more shallow leagues, especially one-catcher leagues? Because most of the leagues I play in are two catchers, and he's universally rostered in those leagues, understandably so. But the threshold is really whether or not he's going to get enough playing time to do damage in a 10-team league where you start one catcher. Yeah, you know, I, I think he, I, I think he uh, has enough of a ceiling that I would be going after him there. And I mean, if you're already in a league like that and you're digging around in the catcher bin and Kirk doesn't work out, like there's going to be another Kirk type or you know another like safer catcher who you can turn to and just hold your nose at and throw in your lineup every day. Like, so uh, I'm totally fine uh, risking the playing time for Kirk, especially early in the season as he is working to overtake Jansen as the primary catcher there. Uh, I'm very comfortable making that risk and hoping that he can, uh, let the talent shine through because this could be someone who is a difference maker at the catcher position. If he, uh, even if he's just getting like, God, I mean, even if he just got 50% of the starts, DVR, like even if we just knew that like rest of the season, if you guaranteed me 81 starts. He gets 81, Jansen gets 81, that's it. Or roll the dice and see how it works out. I would just take the 81 because I think that he could do very well with that amount of playing time and would be someone who, even if he was only getting that many ABs, would be worth going after and be maybe a top 10 catcher. Yeah, I think the original take I had on Kirk during draft season, this is before they added George Springer to the mix in Toronto, Mm -hmm. was that it didn't seem like he was necessarily going to get as much time DHing as people wanted. That was before Springer got there. Right. Once they added Springer, it was kind of an easy, well, I'm out on Kirk just because I don't know if he's going to start the year on the roster. Seeing how spring training played out, they clearly like him. And mm-hmm. StatCast numbers when he debuted last year were really good. Like There are reasons to be excited. He doesn't strike out a lot. He hits the ball hard, and he can hit the ball to all fields. That's a really fun offensive player. 
to have behind the plate. Uh, but I, I see him as a guy that you definitely want to think about in a 10 or a 12 team league with one catcher because Mitch Garver did a ton of damage two years ago playing less than two thirds of the time, right? Like yep. it could be kind of like that because Kirk is just that good of a hitter. And I guess I, I wish I'd been a little more, a little more trusting in the overall skills there and been a little more aggressive with him earlier in draft season because I have mostly missed out on Alejandro Kirk. Uh, the typical catchers available, they, they look like your usual waiver wire catchers. I think the most interesting guy to me after Kirk, who's actually available in about half of TGFBI leagues, is Francisco Mejia. We just don't know how the playing time split with Mike Zanino is going to work out. But I keep coming back to this. In 2019, in the second half of the season, Francisco Mejia was an above average hitter behind the plate for the Padres. There's always there's been a question about whether or not he's going to stick behind the plate defensively. Zanino is a good defender. That's why the Rays brought him back. But Mejia can hit. He's always been a hit tool over power sort of guy. The Rays have a nice track record of bringing in bats like this and maxing out their value. So at least in two catcher leagues, I don't think Mejia is there from a one catcher league perspective because we just don't know how much playing time there's going to be. Mm -hmm. But I think there's going to be at least a 50% share. And he's a good enough hitter where in a 15-team league with two catchers, he should be rostered. And I would say maybe even in a 12-team league with two catchers, there's a good chance that Mejia is is in there. It basically means he's a top 25 catcher mm-hmm. the rest of the way. I think that's the type of hitter that he is. And I guess I see more of a two-thirds, one-third split favoring Mejia over Zanino. But again, that's just based on how I think they stack up and my prediction of skills, not anything the team has said about how they're going to use them. Totally with you that he should be owned universally in two catcher leagues. There's no way I want to be on the side of saying that Mejia is not going to be a top 25 catcher. I think that is very easy. I also think that there's a little bit of post-hype sleeper to him, right? I mean, never really got the shot, didn't really happen for him in Cleveland, and then he goes to San Diego and, as you said, was really good over the second half of 2019. Last year, a bit of a disaster, but... I think that he, like, we know what Mike Zunino is, right? And there's there's plenty of real-life value to a guy like Mike Zunino. I think that in the ideal world for the Rays, Mejia plays well enough to demand that two-third, one-third split. And I think that he's going to get the opportunity to do it. And again, with his his skills, 25 years old, this is a guy who I want to bet on at the start of the season. If it doesn't work out, there are plenty, not plenty, but like, you know, I could turn to Tucker Barnhart if I have to, right? If I, for my second catcher, like Tucker Barnhart's always sitting there for you. Guys like that are there. And if it doesn't work out, you're already in this, you know, catcher 20 to 25 bin to begin with. It's not going to kill you if it doesn't work out and you're dipping down to catcher 28, 29. So he's someone who I do like taking a shot on right now. Yeah, you look at his career, 6.4% barrel rates, not like off the charts good or anything like that. But we did see a little bit of growth with the exit velocity from 18 to 19. The shortened season, he barely played, so it was just mm-hmm. a total disaster year. Just 42 plate appearances for Mejia, and things got more crowded, of course, at the end of the year when they added Austin Nola to the mix in San Diego. So I'm with you. I think there's still some untapped potential here. It's not going to cost you much. You're probably looking at 3 to 5% of your budget to bid on Mejia in most leagues. I think it's a risk worth taking because finding a catcher that plays a little more than the field is worth it because yeah. all these other guys are so similar. <laughs> Max Stassi, I'm surprised he's rostered in 95% of TGFBI leagues. I like him. I think he's going to play a lot more than Kurt Suzuki, but he's uh-huh. coming off of hip surgery. So like, I'm buying into some of the stuff we saw from him in 2020, but I think the playing time initially could be even lighter than Mejia's, even if long-term. It's a little more certain. Um, the only other like interesting catcher to me, and then there's the guys out there. I mean, Jason Castro is out there, and maybe in some shallow leagues you could find 
Elias Diaz and try and see what he can do in Colorado. Luis Torrens, I think, is kind of interesting because similar to the situation in Tampa Bay, we don't know what the playing time split is going to be with Tom Murphy. Murphy and Zanino are similar players, right? Big power guys that strike out a lot. I think you could look at Torrens and say, if he handles the staff well and he puts a lot of balls in play, he could also carve out a two-thirds playing time share. And I think the reason I have him below Mejia is that I think he brings a little bit less offensive ceiling than Mejia does. But I still think he's Mm -hmm. at least on my radar for two-catcher leagues because I think the playing time should be there. And that's what we're talking about here. And you want to take a shot on a guy who can do that. Like, I I make the Tucker Barnhart joke, right? Like, Tucker Barnhart's on the opposite side of that. He's always had that playing time stability in Cincinnati. That could be going away, depending on what uh, what happens with uh, Tyler Stevenson in Cincinnati this season. So, you know, I get a little concerned about that. Torrens is the sort of guy who can flip it in his favor. And so that's something you want to take a shot on, especially in two catcher leagues. You know, if you're if you're anything like me, you're not spending too much on the position in two catcher leagues, which sort of means you're always on the fringes and looking for someone to jump up in terms of expected playing time. And this is the time you find that. You don't find that guy absent an injury in May. You find it the first couple of weeks of the season. And so I like taking shots on guys like this who could flip playing time in their favor. And Torrance is one of the few guys who's going to give you that opportunity here this early. Let's move away from the catchers because everything else is usually more interesting. Let's go to the corner infield where Jonathan India, who uh, is only... 2% 2% rostered in TGFBI is pretty interesting. He's corner infield now because he's third base only in most leagues. He will add second base very soon because the Reds are serious about Eugenio Suarez playing shortstop. So they're reconfiguring some things and India is going to get a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's, it does make me a little less excited about some of the Reds pitchers. But mm-hmm. look, Jonathan India, I think I said this at the time when this first kind of became a story. He probably will never live up to where he was drafted. But that doesn't mean he's going to be a bad player or a below-average player at all. You know, he might just be a good big leaguer who happened to be drafted fifth overall. We did see pretty good OBP skills in the minors, very patient hitter, uh, lowered his K rate to a career-best 17.9% when he debuted at AA in 2019. Of course, it would have been really interesting to see what he did between AA and AAA in the 2020 season, had there been a minor league season. Uh, but I think people have soured on India a little bit more than they should. And I think there's a good chance that at least in 15-team leagues, he's going to become a useful bottom-of-the-roster sort of guy, especially when he's going to have corner-middle eligibility being second and third base eligible. Probably in the bottom third of the lineup, at least for now, mm-hmm. but does have the kinds of skills that you're looking for in someone that could move up if there's an injury atop the order. Bingo, right there. High walk rate every single step of the way in his professional career. It tells you it's, he's a guy who's got a good handle of the strike zone. He, you know, he, he's just he just he gets it. He gets it, and that's a, that's a big step uh, for any hitter. And uh, yeah, you like you said, right? No, no uh, time, uh, no actual time last year. But you go back to that 2019 season between a high end double A. You're talking about you know, a guy who struck out less than 20 percent of the time and walked about 12, 13 percent of the time. I mean, that's that's an impressive skill from a guy who was 22 years old in 2019. So that command of the strike zone, commitment to him from his uh, coaching staff, right there. That to me is very interesting for a guy who is this young and as you said, like has that skill set to potentially move up in the order and they could play around. Uh, clearly, they already have shown themselves comfortable to being willing to experiment and play around with things, and it wouldn't surprise me if India, moving toward the top of the order, so long as he shows himself capable of hanging with Major League Pitching, could be something that they end up doing there. So, uh, yeah, definitely a guy who uh, who's cheap, easy to get, and uh, has enough of a ceiling for us to be interested in this early in the year. 
Yeah, I think he's another guy that kind of fits into that 5% range bid-wise yep. because there's a chance he keeps the job, so you got to bid a little <clears> more <throat> than like a min-bid. And because there is some prospect pedigree, there's going to be some interest there. Um, the other names on the corner, for the most part, I think are going to be min-bid players. Jake Bowers won the starting first base job somehow. He's not good. I don't, I don't <laughs> think you want Jake Bowers in your team. Um, if you bid more than a minimum bid on Jake Bowers, you're probably Nando. And uh, I, I appreciate Nando's optimism about Jake Bowers, but I don't think he's long for this job at all. I, I just... I hope I'm wrong for Nando's sake, but I don't see it playing out that way. Uh, the other guy that's kind of interesting is Paven Smith. It could play some right field. Sure. Nicole Calhoun on the IL to start the season. But we're talking about 15-team mixers, anything deeper. If you have a keeper, dynasty element, a little extra appeal there. It's just hard to see where exactly he plays once Calhoun comes back in a few weeks. So he's a very uh, short-term sort of option mm-hmm. as a guy that has first base eligibility now that will pick up outfield eligibility with uh, the opportunities in right field. Uh, there's a Swiss Army Knife player that's out there that might play a little more to begin the season. Mike Brasso, of course, had that big home run off of Aroldis Chapman in the playoffs. First, second, and third base eligible. So you can count him as a corner guy. You can count him as a middle guy. Rostered in about half of TGFBI leagues right now. If he can keep finding playing time and his defensive versatility certainly opens that door, mm-hmm. I actually think he could be the kind of guy you pick up now who sticks around longer than you expect thanks to that multi-position eligibility. Yeah, this is uh, this is a playing time play, right? I mean, this is a guy who uh, you're in those 15 team leagues. You like having a guy who can bounce around to multiple infield spots, including both corner and middle, and because of the versatility, could end up getting more playing time than we're expecting him to get, and is going to have that opportunity uh, off the bat with the G Man Choi injury. So the the strikeout rate a little bit of a concern, but a 378 OBP last year in the 98 plate appearances. Obviously, we're not going to take that as you know gospel, but it's something. It's something to run with, and the, the the glove plays, and the glove can play at multiple spots, and that's going to make him uh, someone who could get in Kevin Cash's uh, on the right side of his manager for real life, and that can lead to something good in fantasy. Again, follow playing time early in the season. It can lead you to some very good spots. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think the the other interesting players, mostly middle infielders, again, more guys who are multi-eligible in some cases, Josh Rojas is second base only in a lot of leagues right now. I think he can move around a little bit. Cattell Marte is going to play center field. They option Dalton Varsho to AAA. A lot of moving parts on this D-backs roster. I would say it's possible that Rojas also sees time in the outfield, though, at some point if they've got some other configuration that they feel works for him. He's had a really nice spring, went on a home run binge a couple of weeks ago, has shown power, has shown speed, has shown some OBP skills in the minors, uh, more widely rostered than someone like India at 2%, in part because I think the speed probably holds up a little better at the big league level. If you look at the success rates as a base dealer, Rojas in the minor leagues a bit more encouraging than India. And I think there's also a clearer path to the top of the order right now for Rojas in Arizona than there is in India too. So you get better lineup position, a little more speed, and a guy that really could be a breakout player this year. I think he came up in a Mike Petriello piece recently, uh, looking at some underlying numbers that were really interesting on the StatCast side. So uh, what do you make of Josh Rojas getting this opportunity in Arizona? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you really uh, hit on all the key points here. You know, Obviously, we know Dalton Varsho is going to be back for this team sooner rather than later, and that can maybe result in some sort of a playing time crunch. But I look at this, I look at the way this team is constructed, right? And we're assuming we're going to be looking at something like David Peralta, Ketel Marte, Eduardo Escobar, Christian Walker as the first four. Like, if Rojas' on base and speed ends up playing right off the bat, like, there's an easy way to construct it. Like, he doesn't need 
Peralta or Marte or really anyone in the top part of the order to, quote, fail early in the season to get himself to the top of the order. There's a clear path so long as that plays. And, like, if we're talking about a guy who can be a, I don't know, like a th- even just like a 340, 345 on-base guy with the speed, speed he brings, like, isn't Rojas, Marte, Peralta, Escobar, Walker a little bit more interesting of a top five than it would be with Rojas slide, slotted into the five spot? Or then you've got Varsho potentially uh, coming in there as well, like, I like that. I think this team could be at its best with a Rojas playing to 90% of his ceiling as the leadoff man. And so that is something that I find very interesting. I like it when guys have a path to playing their own way to the top of an order rather than needing someone to sputter the way that I would say Kevin Biggio needs in Toronto. Yeah, right. There's just fewer, fewer obstacles to the value really kind of shooting through the roof. So. I'm definitely in with you on Rojas. I would say of the hitters we're talking about on this pod, I mean, I definitely like him more than India. Mm-hmm. I like him more than Brasso. Uh, unless you're in a league where you drafted early and Roddy Telez is still out there, maybe you'd pay more for Telez or something. But I think Rojas might be the most expensive hitter available in about a third of TGFBI leagues this weekend. Uh, Kevin Newman's still out there if you're looking for middle infield help. Se- second and shortstop eligible. I mean... I'm not sure that he's a good player, but he's got a lot of playing time, a dozen <laughs> homers, and 16 steals in 2019. If, I mean, if he gets back to doing two of those three things, if the power is not ex- non-existent, but he's running a little bit and he's hitting for average like he did in 2019, that's going to play. That's going to make mm-hmm. him a really good early season pickup. So lineup position there is pretty favorable too. I, I would definitely consider Kevin Newman if I had a spot in the middle infield and I had some need for a little bit of speed on my rosters. And then David Bodie, I got to ask you, yeah. with Nico Horner optioned, <laughs> we've talked about Bodie on the show before, nice stat cast numbers, getting an opportunity for a little more playing time. What do you think he does with it? I think he's uh, definitely worth the the uh, shot right here early in the season. He's going to play second base every day with Nico Horner going down. I mean, Eric Sogard's going to get to mix in, but David Ross uh, minced no words uh, when they sent Horner down. He said it was largely because of the fact that that they think David Bodie is ready to run with the second base job and that, you know, Horner jumps from double A to the majors and struggled in the majors last year. So you can talk about his spring stats all you want. The guy could probably use, I don't think this is a service time thing. I think the guy could use a little bit of triple A seasoning before he's facing major league pitching day in, day out. And he needs to be playing every single day if he is going to develop. David Bodie, we know the power can be legit. There's probably not much of a path to him hitting anywhere but the bottom third of the order, at least to start the season uh, with what the Cubs have. But I think he's going to have that opportunity to be an everyday guy. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Cubs were sort of a throwback team that had like a pretty set one through eight almost day in and day out. And Bodie is going to be a, a big part of that. I, I worry a tiny bit about the on base because he can swing and miss quite a bit, but the power's for real. He's going to have, I think, plenty of RBI opportunities hitting behind you know, Wilson Contreras and Jack Peterson, most likely to be the guys who are right in front of him in the order. Maybe he flips with Jason Hayward, depending on lefty and righty, but I like this guy. I like this guy as a uh, as someone who, if you're still drafting, you can still get late. I like him as someone who, if he's available in your league, he's probably not going to cost you too much in fab and can definitely give you some pretty solid production in home runs and RBIs, given what you're going to be looking for out of someone of his ilk. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think he's kind of a, a power-first version of Newman in some ways. If you sure, need speed, yeah. Newman's a good way to go. If you need a little pop, I think David Bodie's the better way to go. But mm-hmm. both should be considerations as you look to uh, upgrade in the middle infield this weekend. 
Move on to the outfield. Not a lot out there. Really a few speculative plays. Jason Hayward available in more leagues than he should be because he's Jason Hayward. I think he's actually a better player than people give him credit for, but we can make that argument some other day. Uh, I was wondering about some Orioles outfielders. DJ Stewart, I believe, was also in the same Mike Petriello piece that featured Josh Rojas as a possible breakout player this year. Opportunities are everything in that Baltimore outfield. I know Anthony Santander's had an injury that's been slowing him down in recent days, so maybe DJ Stewart finds his way into the lineup a bit more than expected to begin the season. Only 12% rostered right now in TGFBI, so I think you got to take a really close look at that playing time situation and try and make a call whether or not he's worth a speculative ad. Mike Talkman is the other guy I wanted to throw at you. 7% rostered right now in TGFBI. Got blocked with the return of Brett Gardner to the roster. We did find out that Luke Voigt uh, was injured uh, and has had knee surgery over the weekend, so that's a big blow for them. He's going to miss at least a month or so of the regular season. So maybe they can make the pieces fit a little easier with Talkman now than they could before the Voigt surgery news dropped. But there was many as eight teams interested in trading for Mike Talkman. So between the Yankees losing Voigt, I don't know if there's any way to shuffle things around to get Talkman more playing time, and the trade rumors... Do you speculate on Talkman now, hoping that some path to playing time opens up relatively soon? I do. I think this is a great speculative ad right now. We know what Talkman can do with uh, consistent playing time. And, like, you never want to bet, especially in April, you don't want to bet on a guy getting traded. But, like, you know, Talkman's 30. The Yankees are ready to win the World Series right now. It's not like we're talking about you know, a 22-year-old trade piece who the Yankees are going to have for a long time who can be uh, a big part of their next competitive window. Like, Talkman's 30. He's either contributing to this Yankees team or he isn't. And the only way he can maybe contribute to this Yankees team is by getting traded and having them bring in something that they need more than what Talkman offers given the state of their roster. Like, I think that... As far as you can bet on a player being traded sometime early in the season, we are experiencing that right now with Mike Talkman. So I am very happy to roll the dice. Hope that happens. Maybe he does get a little bit more playing time with Voight being out. We know that you know uh, Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton are injuries waiting to happen as well. So you can always have that as like uh, adding a couple of percentage points to his possibility of earning more playing time. But no one, no one would be surprised if Mike Talkman were in another jersey by like April 17th. And so I think that is worth chasing right now and hoping that it does end up happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think you do want to take that chance on Talkman right now because somehow I think it's going to open up for him a bit. would love to see him in left field for the White Sox and playing on the yeah. big side of platoon in that lineup would be huge. Uh, one other thing on Stewart, who I mentioned a moment ago, I, he's still dealing with a hamstring injury, so I think you have to be in a deep bench situation if you're going to stash him away starting now. But it may not be long before he's getting some opportunities in that Orioles outfield, so I would put him on your watch list if you're someone who likes to use uh, the watch list feature on your league site. Uh, one potential drop question for you. There were rumors that Yasiel Puig might be uh, an option for the White Sox. I don't know if that was just people trying to speak something into existence or what sure. exactly that was. He's yeah. rostered in over 70% of TGFBI leagues. I don't have Puig anywhere. Would you hold him at this point, or would you just cut him loose and, and try and pick up any one of the guys that we're talking about to get someone who's actually on a roster? Because even <laughs> if Puig signs, how long is it going to be before he's actually ready to start playing mm -hmm. in games, right? It's going to be at least a couple of weeks at a minimum, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is actually more of like a uh, your own fantasy philosophy style question. Like, I never would have had Puig to begin with. So, yes, I think you should drop him for any number of the guys that we've talked about. But if you are the sort of person who wanted Puig on your team, who thinks that there is a chance that he becomes, you know, first of all, an active player in the majors and then is able to ramp up quickly, then I don't think you should be cutting him. Like, Don't go back on what you believed a week ago, just because we're now a little bit closer to opening day. That's basically what my advice here would be. I never would have been on Puig, so I would be off him now too. But if you were on him two, three, seven days ago, I don't think you necessarily need to run away from him, have the courage of your convictions here, and maybe something good happens for you. I would uh I would say reverse course get rid of him <laughs> <laughs> but we this would be this would just be staying on course for you and me I don't think there's any chance that he is contributing to a team in any in any near future I would, I would put it this way if if the little voice in your head is saying maybe I should cut Puig you could say yeah you, you should cut yeah. Puig listen you to the little voice in your you head could definitely that's, Marie, that's probably the best way to go absolutely Marie Kondo Puig like right away boom right is it, is it bringing you joy if you think about it for a second <laughs> boom he's gone <laughs> on that note that's a good way to think about Puig I guess uh, that is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast you can find Beller on Twitter at mbeller I'm at Derek Van Riper uh, we are back on Tuesday with Under the Radar before we go I'd just like to say if you've listened to this entire show and you enjoyed it please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review on any platform where you can do that good luck with your waiver pickups in week one we will talk to you on Tuesday Thank you.